With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Did you ever warrant the arrest for the murder of William Law, who was the gas station attendant? But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice. A crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 7, Episode 20. 20. Uh, which I apparently got wrong again on the the uh, post on the fan page. If you guys notice that I sound a little bit different, it's because I do. I got invisible aligners to straighten my teeth out, and I got them yesterday, and I'm not used to them yet. And I didn't take them out to record this. So hopefully I don't sound real super lispy during the episode. Joined today, as always, by the podcast mechanic, Mike Bussing. Hey, Bob. And Mr. Zach Weaver. Hello. He draws pictures for a living. Still. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this episode, we had a pretty big reveal of a tip that was called into me that later, as we continued to research the case, found out that it seems as though that she absolutely was describing a car theft that did happen on that night, could be connected to Bill's murder. You guys have a lot of questions about that, so let's go ahead and get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, our first question comes from Joe. That episode reminded me of Jim Clemente's profile. Young, unsophisticated kids. What are your thoughts? Exactly that. The first thing I thought, if you remember back when we did, uh, had Jim on, did the profile, I didn't necessarily agree with him, although I default to his expertise. Obviously, I don't know what I'm doing compared to Jim. To me, a lot of the things we saw spoke to criminal sophistication like taking the the tray out of the cash register was a big one we were discussing. To me, that seemed like somebody who was criminally sophisticated enough to know to remove anything that may have their fingerprints on it. Jim saw it as a bad attempt at staging a homicide to look like a robbery and was very likely pointing towards someone who is much younger. And of course, our tipster, the people she said that stole the car that night, fit his profile perfectly, that they were younger, teenagers, criminally inexperienced, which is you know exactly what he described. So that was one thing that really, really got my attention with, with the tip. 
Yeah, no, we we did focus on the cash row being taken, but uh, to me, that was something that could have just been you know a random decision made with no thought behind it, which takes that whole unsophisticated aspect out of things. Yeah, but I think that that's why it pointed towards a, a lack of sophistication. You know, you know, so someone who is very much criminally experienced and has really thought this out would have made a conscious decision, like I thought, to take it out. Someone who just in kind of a panic and a random decision, like, oh, well, let me grab this, points to someone who is more impulsive, younger, and doesn't have a lot of criminal experience. So my only hold up at the moment, though, is the gun and the projectiles. Okay. That's the only thing that I can see that doesn't make them young and inexperienced. How do you mean? Well, if they are, as Jamie said in the episode, that there is something done to them. Uh-huh. That leads to premeditation. They're, they're thinking about doing this. Doesn't seem like something younger kids would do. Right. And Jamie said something about them being the tips cut off. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that maybe we know that. But from the reports I've seen, I don't know that we know that that's the case. What we know is that they were altered. Okay. So I thought, you know, because one thing we've talked about this on a previous episode, people would do is is to take a knife and carve like an X mm-hmm. into the soft lead in the, the, the tip of the bullet, uh, which would cause it to expand more. Do you think it really points to the, if they did something to the bullet that it was premeditated to kill Bill Little? Or is it, it could just as easily, I think, be, say, some teenagers that have heard that's something people do to bullets and that, and they just do it to their bullets and their gun they're carrying around. Very well could be. Yeah, while we're on the whole bullet thing, Nina has a question for you, Zach. She says, as an experienced hobby shooter, why would you saw off bullet casings and how common is it? Also, what would the effect be? So what she's talking about and what was talked about in the episode is the projectile that actually comes out, which is what everybody sees. And if you were to saw it off, as Jamie said, and as it stated, you're creating a blunt end, mm-hmm. which is going to cause more damage. That, that's the first thing that I think of. They actually have bullets like this. They're called wad cutters that have a blunt end. And and they're strictly to cause a bigger hole. You know, they don't they actually don't open as much and they don't have as much penetration. So is is that the is that a common thing? Because I've 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 heard of, as I just mentioned, you know, carving an X into the end mm-hmm. of them. I've never heard of people actually cutting like sawing or cutting off the end of the round. Is that I, I've never seen anybody actually do that. You mm-hmm. know, I, they they do produce a round called the wad cutter that is right. a, a blunt end. It's to stop over penetration. Right. Typically, there's not a lot of people that actually use those for any purpose. Actually, I don't know any good purpose to use them um, because you wouldn't use them in home defense because they have home defense rounds that are, that are even better at stopping over penetration, uh-huh. which is more along the lines of like carving an X in the bullet like you talked about. Mm-hmm. By carving an X in the bullet, and especially if it's deeper, it opens that projectile up into a larger pattern, even to the point that some of those pieces can break off, causing more damage, which is, you know, if you're going to kill somebody... Or if you're out hunting, you know, they make hunting rounds that do that right? to help the process of, you know, causing more damage to put that animal down, or in this case, to murder somebody. Now, that's not typically what they're sold for, right? but that's what it would do is it would spread that round out larger, creating more damage to potentially end this person faster. Right, because there's two elements there, right? As, and not being a, a big shooter, but, but being a, a hunter, mm-hmm. I know that a hunting round is, if I'm out target shooting, practicing, yeah. I'll usually use something like a full metal jacket, mm-hmm. a less expensive round. But then my hunting rounds are, you always want softer mm-hmm. and more expansion for two reasons. One, to stop the, the, you're not worrying so much about the overpenetration, but you want that round to open up. And it, it sounds bad to say cause more damage, but what you're trying to do is to, is to 
harvest the animal more humanely. Mm-hmm. You know, so you want immediate damage and death. So it's you know the the animal is is harvested humanely. Yeah. So I I could see that if someone was planning, someone was carrying a gun for the purposes of committing a crime, especially mm-hmm. to see to me this again points more towards young kids that maybe have heard that that's something that you would do mm-hmm. to bullets. What do they use the wad cutters for? The only thing I've ever seen the wad cutters used for is, is for defense. Uh-huh. But again, I don't they make defensive rounds that are so much better than that. What could it be that they're buying cuz cuz I I know for a fact that home defense rounds are expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, so if I buy a box of rounds to go out to the range just to shoot. Yeah. You know, I might spend, you know, for cheap rounds, say for a nine millimeter, you could pay eight, ten bucks for a box of fifty rounds. Mm-hmm. But for a box of home defense rounds, it's basically a dollar a shot. Yeah. You know, for a for a box of twenty is gonna be twenty dollars. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if it could have something to do with that, which again I think may indicate younger people if they're buying cheap bullets and yeah. then modifying them to be more destructive. Very well could be. And again, we have to realize too that these are twenty twos. This is a twenty two long rifle mm-hmm. bullet is what's shot. And now I'm gonna say that I don't know how many people know firearms. It's called a twenty two long rifle. That doesn't mean it's shot out of a rifle. That's just the actual caliber of what it's called. Right. With that being said, the projectiles are typically just lead. They're not coded in a twenty two, mm-hmm. which means they are easier to manipulate. Which, you know, like you said, could lead to being younger and just hearing that they could do that. Right. So I, I'm really torn back and forth on this. Well, and, and it's interesting because a twenty two I've always thought was an odd choice, mm-hmm. which again points to someone probably less experienced. Yeah. Because a twenty two is such a small round. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's you're never going to get full penetrate. You're not going to pass through a body with it. It's yeah. Gonna, the, your, the bullet's going to get lodged in the body somewhere. Not something I would think you would typically use if you're trying to commit a murder. Although I guess there are some advantages. One is they're quiet, mm-hmm. and two would be just they're cheap. Yeah, I guess that makes more sense if they had the intention of doing something with that twenty-two because they don't cause much damage because they're so small mm-hmm. that they might take and you know cut the ends off or whatever to try to make them more destructive. It could very well be. And the thing that I talk about, like overpenetration, and the reason that's a big concern is typically more in home defense. And when I say just a home defense, I mean just in general defense, because you are liable for that bullet wherever it goes. Mm-hmm. So the moment that you pull that trigger and that go that bullet goes out, if that bullet passes through and goes into the house next door, you're still liable for that. Right. So that's where they want to have those bullets spread and stop the overpenetration, which is a big thing. Now I don't think they did this for this reason. Right. I mean that seems like they've really overthought it. Yeah. And especially in my opinion. If you're committing a murder, you probably don't want the bullet there. The more that I think about it. Yeah. Because if it does pass through, there's a likelihood that someone's going to find it. But there's, you know what I mean? Like if it doesn't pass through, they're finding it for sure. Mm-hmm. If it passes through, there's slim to no chance they're going to find it in someone's yard. Right. You know what I mean? But then again, I wonder if that was on anybody's mind in 1991. Probably before, not. Before CSI and. Yeah, probably not. You know, things like that where they, we we're actually seeing people, albeit dramatized and fictionalized, but based on reality where they're. Yeah. They're taking projectiles and putting them in a microscope and looking for striations and matching them back to a particular gun. Mm-hmm. I don't think people in 91 really knew that was necessarily a thing. I would say the two big fronts for me, the two big opposing theories for me on this is if it's someone that knows what they're doing, they've taken the gun for the reason that it's quiet. Mm-hmm. And if it's someone that doesn't know what they're doing, it's just because it's an easily accessible gun. Right. And there's no clear line of what we're looking at, which is the hard part. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. Well, as far as people knowing stuff uh, about ballistics and forensic testing of bullets, 
there were some some things that people mainstream wise got like out of the news, like the Kennedy assassination, that kind of stuff, where they looked at didn't they look at the rifle that killed Kennedy pretty extensively? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. That is a I good think point. About it. My only rebuttal to that would be that they had the firearm. Oh yeah, when right. they looked at it, so it'd be easier to identify because they could shoot another round literally and take a look at it and look at the striations rather than try to find it backwards. Yeah, but I, I at least there was you know examining. No, that's a really people good knew point. that they could examine striations on a mm-hmm. bullet to see if they came from the same gun. That's a really good point. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right. Christina says, I'm curious whether the local news reported the car theft that occurred on the same night as the murder. I could definitely see a more minor event being overshadowed by the murder, even if it had been covered. I'm just wondering if some of the information provided by the anonymous tipster would have been available to locals who didn't have personal knowledge of the car theft. Uh, maybe back then it, it may not have even been covered in the news because essentially the extent of the crime with the car was someone reported their car stolen and then they found it two hours later and gave it back to them. You know what I mean? So it wasn't even like it was, they were, it was still, it was still gone. It may not have even made the news. We can look and see if there's any article, you know, we, we, we I'm sure we can go to the Panagraphs website and pay to get the, the full newspaper from the day after the murder, whatever may not have made the news. I, and I guess the point they're trying to get at is maybe that, you know, the, the our tipster was making up the story. Mm-hmm. I don't think at all. That's about, she had definitely did have details about that car theft that were not, that we didn't know, you know, we, and again, for her to point the, the big one that caught my attention was, and you can hear in the conversation that I didn't have, all the information yet. I hadn't searched. I hadn't looked into anything about this car yet. So mm-hmm. like when she's telling me it was on Grove street, it was apartment Mart, you know, I'm taking that information. And then later, you know, I'm, I'm digging into what we, the little bit we do have about the car. And sure enough, the, because I thought maybe it was another car that was stolen, mm-hmm. but sure enough, the one car that was stolen that night that we had the dispatch report on says it was taken from 1005 East Grove street, apartment one, which is apartment Mart, the, the same place she was talking about. So, she just had to, to to come up 28 years later with this information. There's way too many details that not only did she get right, but weren't readily, certainly not easily available to anyone. In my opinion, 100%. She, she was, every word she was speaking was truth. Yeah. And I agree. I, I do think that what she was saying was truth about that particular car. I still am like not 100% sure that the car has anything to do with the murder. No, I'm not 100% sure about it either. It may have absolutely nothing to mm-hmm. it. The, honestly, the fact that the car was stolen at the same time, that's what I, I think I said it even in the episode, that I wasn't, 
it wasn't particularly interesting to me. It was like, yeah. oh, okay, so what? It's a different crime. Now, it made a little more sense when I really looked into the crime rates in Bloomington and found out that legitimately that was the only other major crime that night that happened to occur at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's the same part of town. Maybe that's a little more interesting. But it was – and even her saying, I thought I recognized the voice. Mm-hmm. That's 28 years later. That's tough. Not to say that she's not right. Mm-hmm. But and, – and it would make sense if these, if these guys knew Bill and knew about the murder that they might have made a call to somebody like that. We always thought it sounded like a young person, maybe even intoxicated a little bit. Really? Like, that's what I was going to say was to me, that person on the answering machine wasn't a young, wasn't a teenager. It sounded like a grown adult to me. Oh, really? See, I, I always, I guess we never really discussed it. I always thought like teenager. Really? Like somebody Bill's age. Man, that's crazy. I, I could go either way with it. I mean, it, it sounded like an adult male, but you know, you're an adult male at 17, 18 years old. Right. And voices are different. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's hard to say. Yeah. I guess that was just my own bias. I guess I always thought it was it was somebody young. Mm-hmm. But the answer machine was a big part of why I really thought this maybe there's some connection. But the big thing was, how did they know the details of the murder before it was reported? Yeah. You know, and, and that's what, you know. Obviously, and you guys, those of you that are longtime listeners know that, you know, we're, you know, I'm not expecting people to remember exact times. And if somebody tells me an exact time mm-hmm. from 28 years ago, I'm less inclined to believe them because it's just, that's not how our, how our memories work. It's not how our brains work. So I tried, you heard me asking her, was it dark out when they got back? Do you remember if you can kind of picture the moment? Was it dark? And then things like, well, did you have a curfew? When did you have to be home? Mm-hmm. Because that's something you were, yeah, yeah, I had to be home at 10 o'clock. I know I was home on time. I was home early because they had because she remembers them telling her to leave before she was planning to leave, and so her her thought of maybe it was around eight thirty or nine sounds about right. Mm-hmm. At best, I think anyone could know at that moment would have been that something happened at the Clark Station. Yeah, but to know that Bill Little was shot and killed—that's now granted. At first, she said they said Bill Little, but then when I asked her about it, she said she's really she can't remember if they said his name. Mm. She thinks, yeah, they said they said the name, or if he was shot, or if he was just killed. You know, mm-hmm. so some of that, some of that, because again, the way the memory works, you, you know, her mind could have filled in some of those details later. Yeah, and and I'm maybe it's just me being picky. I don't know about the like the shot versus killed thing. You know, they said that you know my friend Bill Little was killed. Right. You know, how do they know he was killed? Like we're did they stay there? Did they check him? You know, they, I could see him coming and saying, my friend Bill Little was shot if they were part of it. Right. Because, you know, if I was going to shoot somebody, I'm leaving. I don't know if they're mm-hmm. surviving or but not. But that could go either way, too. I mean, a lot of people also would just assume if you get shot in the chest, you're dead. True. Very true. I don't know. It's just the way I think. And that's why I vocalized it. But that's right. the way I think is I don't know that I would say that he got killed because I was just getting the hell out of there. I don't know. Right. And also keep in mind, too, the nature of the wounds. Mm-hmm. Literally all four uh, chambers of the heart were punctured. Yeah. He literally would have been dead in seconds. Yeah. You know, so it's and it's funny because it's kind of the opposite. You know, we always tell people that, you know, it's not like on TV mm-hmm. when someone gets shot. Jim Clemente's told us that many times, you know, on TV, somebody gets shot and they crumble to the ground and they're dead. Mm-hmm. It's not really like that. Usually there's a, there's a long process of them dying. But in this particular instance, it would have been like on TV. Yeah. With, and, of course, we don't know how far apart the shots were. If we're listening to Martinez, they were pretty close succession mm-hmm. you know boom boom but severing the heart in the way that those shots did it would have been him crumbling and just dead gone mm. within within seconds 
So I, I could I could totally see why somebody would assume that he's dead from that. So the one question I have that I don't think we have is do we know what color the stolen car was? Yeah, we do. I said it in the episode. I think it, it was grayish blue, I okay. think. I think she said she thought it was blue. And in the police reports, I think it said it was like a gray. Okay, I must have missed that. A but. gray or blue type color. And we, we have, well, we have pictures of it too on the website, okay. so you can see it. And, and, and I see why they put gray, blue, green, because mm-hmm. it's a weird color. Yeah, my truck's like that. My truck's like a gray, brown. It's like a weird color. So I understand. Yeah. I mean, I get that. Mm-hmm. The reason I ask is because, you know, obviously we don't, if that's not, the, if that's the color of the car, it doesn't matter. But, you know, we still had that, the witnesses saying that there was a brown car off on the other road that took off. A few witnesses, yeah. So. Could align. But there was, I, that's not it. I thought I remembered, and it's actually part of what I'm researching for this week's episode. Somebody that gave a report to police said they were in the station earlier that evening, like shortly before the murder, and said they saw a blue car hmm. with people inside. Is that the one they said that was parked around the side, maybe? It wasn't parked at a pump? It was maybe. parked I, around the side? I, I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of. You guys know we record these episodes on Wednesdays. Mm-hmm. So I've started to research what I want to talk about for this week's episode. And the particular person that I'm going to be covering, I think, is the person who said he saw the blue car. Okay. And and so my mind right now is racing because I'm thinking, oh, my God, that could be the connection. Mm-hmm. But I, I haven't gone through those documents yet to speak thoroughly. On. So listen Sunday to find the conclusion of my random thoughts right now. Because I just had a thought that, uh, holy shit, there there could really very well be a connection here uh, with the blue car and these guys. Because, you know, I don't, I don't know if I necessarily think, first of all, to be clear, the three teenagers that stole this car could have absolutely nothing to do with any of this. Mm-hmm. Could be a complete red herring. So that's, that's a possibility. I don't think that's very likely. But I also don't necessarily think that they killed Bill. I think that they may have been in the vicinity or talked to someone or been there and have information about Bill being killed. And it makes sense. Why has no one come forward with information like this? Well, they just stole a damn car. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be running to the police like, hey, I know what happened here because I stole a car that night. That car you found, that was me. Yeah. So there'll be, there'll be more on this on Sunday, but I'm really, I'm actually just, just, Got real excited about Sunday's episode during this conversation. Ron says, I noticed that she said they, quote, pulled in in between 830 and 9. Could that be leakage since they were on foot? How far of a run was it from where the car was ditched to the apartments? Also, does that fit the timeline? I don't think it was leakage. And for those of you who don't know, what Ron's suggesting here is, you know, when we're analyzing an interview and studying the linguistics and word choices, Sometimes people will leak out information, like like if they're lying. For example, I, I've recommended the show before to people, but just so you guys know, again on the Oxygen Channel, there's a show called Criminal Confessions that is like my favorite show ever, and they just released episode one of season three, and it's on the Chris Watts case. Okay, the guy from Colorado who uh, killed his wife and daughters and threw them in a oil bin. Okay, really awesome behind the scenes, watching his interrogations and all that, but. What caught the detective's attention right away, and also me and Becky as we're watching the the interrogation, is when he, an example of leaking information, he starts talking about while his family is missing and he's supposed to be searching for them, he starts talking about them in the past tense. Hmm. That's that's an example of leakage. Like He has knowledge that they are deceased, 
He's always saying, oh, she was such a sweet girl, and she was full of love and life. And they're like, why are you saying she was Mm -hmm. when, as far as you know, she's still alive somewhere? That's an example of leakage. I don't think that's the case here. I think that uh, our tipster was, she was just a little nervous and just, just chose the wrong word there. Because everything she said lines up. You know, when she says the car was stolen from here, it was a Monte Carlo. And I guarantee you that information probably was. It, it probably they probably didn't say a 1983 Monte Carlo was stolen. Yeah, it would just say a car was stolen. So I mean, she knew the make and model of the car. She knew the color of the car. She knew where it was stolen from. And when they come back, they and we know that whoever came back would have come back on foot uh, because the car was recovered in a different location. So mm-hmm. so I don't think there's any leakage there. I don't think there's any dishonesty on her part at all. And now as far as where it was found and, and the timeline, we don't actually know where the car was found. And and we'll get into more of that with Jamie on Sunday because he is going to be on the show. But I, I don't know that we know. He, he said Six Points Road mm-hmm. is where the car was found. I don't know where that information came from because it's not the, – the closest we have to a location is that it was on the west side. Okay. And it makes sense they come in all scratched up because if you're going to ditch a car, you know, thinking about it in a teen mindset, you're not going to take off down the road or down a sidewalk. You're going right. to take off through the trees, through the bushes. Through yards. Through yards trying to get away. Mm-hmm. Jumping over fences. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that they're all scratched up. Yep. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Robin says, the VIN research indicated that the Monte Carlo is a coupe. Are the other cars in the reports coupes or sedans? So for, if you don't know the difference, a coupe is a two-door and a sedan is a four-door. And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. There are several witness descriptions of a brown four-door, most time described as a Buick-type vehicle. And this car was absolutely a, a, a two-door. Again, if you haven't been to the website, I assume Katie's got the documents up, but the the, the pictures of the car are up there, and you'll see, yeah, it's, it's a four-door if you're not familiar with the early 80s Monte Carlo, they're kind of a mix between a sports car and a sedan. I've never seen a four-door Monte Carlo. But I don't think they made four-door Monte Carlos. I think they were all two-door. Hmm. I could be wrong about that. I'm not a big car guy, but they're an interesting body style because they're not like the old muscle cars, like the Chevelles or Novas or whatever, but they're not really a sedan. They were, they were kind of sporty and muscly, but still kind of a family car kind of in between there but they definitely wouldn't be mistaken i don't think as a four-door buick Mm-mm. ugly cars the monte carlos i think they are personally oh, i always wanted one really yeah yeah when i was in, in high school i wanted to get an old monte carlo and like put a, co- or a scoop on the hood and make it into like a race car yeah i don't know why i think it's because everybody else had chevelles and novas and stuff and so i wanted to be different don says the two people who stole the car were they old enough to drive they were, they were, uh, she said they were probably between 17 and 19, uh, a span between the three of them. Leslie says, have you made any progress with locating the two young men who stole the car? And do you expect to interview them? Well, it's a little tricky because 
I need to get with Jamie's attorney because normally, yes, this would be when I would be personally trying to track these people down and interviewing them and getting more information on them. But given the fact that Jamie's case is active in in the fact that, that Tara Thompson is working on building his, his next filing, I turn the information over to her, and I know they have investigators. So I need to check and see, follow up with them and say, if they have investigators actively working on tracking these guys down, then I need to let them do that. And if they're not, then and I get a green light from her, then yes, I will. I would love to interview them. Sandy says, "Do we know who owned the stolen car? And was there a twenty-two in the car when it was taken?" I doubt there was a twenty-two in the car because that would have been a massive red flag, and they would have compared the bullets to that mm-hmm. that gun. We also don't know who stole it. It's weird. So we did. I did say um, Don McElhaney pointed out uh, when I read off the VIN on the episode. Uh, which is some of our our home sleuths that are listening that were you know writing information down and and starting to research. Which thank you to a ton of you who have been working on this. I said the VIN number wrong for the exact reason he's so. I said I and O or L and O a couple times, mm-hmm. and and Don said they never use the letter L or the letter I or the letter O because they're too easily mixed up with the number one and the number zero, mm-hmm. which is what I did was mix them up because they look the same. Um, so wherever I said I or L, it's a one. And when I said, you know, O was a zero. But the the original investigators prior to me did have the correct bin and they had run it through like Carfax. And um, they've tried with the Illinois Secretary of State to get, nobody has any records on it. We cannot find who owns this damn car. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping, one of the reasons I want to talk about it is I'm hoping that there's enough of you in the Bloomington area if you maybe go on our website, I guess this is homework for any of you that live near Bloomington. If you go on our website, get the pictures of the car. If you can make Facebook posts, whatever, and share it, say we're looking for the people who had this vehicle stolen from them in 1991. Mm-hmm. It would be great for us to track because we don't know anything about it. We don't know what was in the car when it got taken back because the reports are gone and we don't know who owned the car. We only know their address. That is strange that this car has just become like a ghost car that mm-hmm. has no past or, you know, no one knows anything about it. Which could be coincidence or there could not be. Mm-hmm. Summer says, did the crime scene techs leave in the middle of the investigation to go process the stolen car or were they finished? Seems odd to leave a murder to process a stolen car unless the investigators believe there was a connection. I know they went that night. I think my guess is they were wrapping up the crime scene investigation. And then they left to go and investigate the car. But again, we don't know. All we have is that blurb that's on our website that I read in the episode from the report. That's all we have. Wendell says, a couple people have asked about this already, but I'd like to get specific. The police report you read says that the car was recovered on the west side. Jamie said something about the car being recovered on Six Points Road. Both of these sites are pretty far, up to two miles, from the Clark Station and the apartments. However, there is a note in the police files about a witness who saw a parked car with its headlights on in an apartment lot behind Domino's Pizza. As we know, the Monte Carlo was found with its headlights in the on switch. With the help of some of the Bloomington residents on this page, meaning the fan page, we determined that in 1991, there was in fact a Domino's Pizza two blocks north of the Clark Station, at the intersection of Linden and Emerson, right where Freedom Oil sits today. There is also an apartment complex next to it, fitting the description and it would be within range of the neighborhood canvas. Are we certain that the car was recovered off Six Points Road and not in the Domino's Pizza parking lot? 
This could have a significant impact on any timelines or scenarios we develop. If the car was recovered off Six Points Road, it is highly unlikely that the two teens stopped at the Clark Station after abandoning the car, as it would be going far off of their route at a time when, by the account, they were hurrying home in a panic. This makes it possible for them to have been at the station around the time of the crime and would fit a scenario where they fled in a panic and abandoned the car. However, if the car was abandoned at the Domino's Pizza, their route home would take them directly past the Clark Station and it's possible that the police were already on scene, allowing them to hear about Bill's murder secondhand. So, to echo everyone else, do we actually have a documented record of where the car was recovered? These are all really good points, and, and like I said, we don't know, at least I don't know with 100% certainty where the car was recovered. That's a great find about the car being found with the headlights on in the Domino's parking lot. I don't know why that would have been noted unless it was probably the stolen car. And you're right, on the map, if it was found there, they could have just walked by the Clark Station and got the information like that. So again, it could be that these guys had absolutely nothing to do with anything. They just happened to have some knowledge of it because you know, if they walked by at 9 o'clock and Bill's parents are there, and you know what happened, and you know everybody around's talking. That it could be something as simple as that, but the only way we're going to know that is if we actually track them down and talk to them. The problem I have with that, though, is if you just stole a car and abandoned it, and you're walking home, why would you go past the cops? I was just halfway through your sentence. I thought, yeah, you would have probably. If you saw cops, you're going. The, you know what I mean? You're, you're going, going down the, the alley. Way. You're going away from them, right? Just as a guilt. You know what I mean? You're like, oh shit, they're here. Well, you know they're looking for you. Yeah. You know, because it, it, it sounds like they ditched a car because they saw a cop car. They at least think the police are looking for them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they, I, I can't imagine they would intentionally go to a crime scene with police everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good point. All right, Chico says, with the revelations on this last episode, are we coming to a stage where we're going to stop the podcast again? Do we already have a new case? That's a good question. I don't have an answer for you, uh, a good answer. I Definitely not right now. As I mentioned, you know, at the beginning of the season, I said that we're gonna, the, the season will probably be shorter. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, you know, I think without new leads, we're going to get to the point where we're probably going to wrap at least for now. As we've done, we, we we've done that with previous seasons, where you know, when we get to a point where there's nothing new to report, we'll move on to another case, and then when new information comes to light, then we'll come back to it. And that's, you know, we did that with the Melgar case, and there has been a ton of new information in the Melgar case, but we can't talk about it yet because the CIU is working on that stuff. So I I don't know. As far as do we have another case? No, we don't have another case, uh, but we do have, at this point, three cases that we're considering, a couple of them that the Innocence Project of Texas has come to us and requested our help with, and um, another one, you know, through our case submission that, that we're interested in. But the other, a lot of this has, and, I, and I'm sorry for being kind of so open about this, and I, I would love to give you guys an exact, this is what's going to happen. But to be very transparent and honest with you, the release of the Oxygen TV show, our TV show on the West Memphis 3, is playing a part in this. What I don't want to do is to end Season 7, start Season 8, and then the TV show start, and then stop season eight to go back to season five, as promised, and then go back to eight again. So, you know, the the hope is that we will conclude season seven right as the Oxygen show airs, and and then we'll go back to season five again. 
and that question gets asked 200 times a week, when is going to air? I don't know. So where we were at with the, with the show was they originally wanted to air it in the first quarter of 2020. So, you know, sometime here, beginning of the year, January, February, March, coming up here. Then when they saw it, when auction saw it, they loved the show. They were super excited. They wanted to put it on the air in October. That's why I said I thought it was going to be in the fall. But the way this works is they have to have an open time slot to put it into. And there was some weird stuff with, with our audio mix we had to redo. We submitted it, and then we had to redo thing, little stuff like, you know, they wanted different music for the score or things like that. So we had to resub, redo the audio mastering, resubmit it back to them in September. By then, we had missed our shot for that October slot. So as far as I know, it's going to be first quarter here like they originally stated. But no one has shared with any of myself or the other producers or any no one knows when they're gonna drop the drop the TV show. So 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 you guys know my goal is to when we find out when the auction show is gonna air, that we will bring season seven to a conclusion just before that, and that'll be when we shift back to five before we start our season eight is the plan. But again, I there's still a lot up in the air. It's just one of the tough and tricky things for Mike and I to do here is, is that constant balance of making sure we got that we're doing good investigative work on our current case, that we are producing episodes that you guys want to hear on our current case, and also always being ready to move to the next case and, and just and trying to keep things flowing without any time off. So so just so you know, we're working on all that, we're balancing it, but we have too many questions to give you any solid answers right now. All right, and our last question comes from Rebecca. Have you talked to Jamie about the tipster's information directly? If so, what was his response? I have talked to Jamie about the information that she gave us, and we had a really good discussion about it, and that information will be revealed in Sunday's episode. So make sure you tune in in two days for episode 21. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. A big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. 
And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fan page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. For the last nine years, I've had the rough family Christmas party. I'm like, what the heck? And it, uh, I'm trying to get comfortable. I'm trying to do something different. It's, it's a blast. There's a theme every year. I'm just going to keep talking over Bob. We've done the Griswolds. We've done TV. We did superheroes one year. I was Robin. You were Batman. I know. It was so good. It, we, we did like we did Adam West Batman. Like I wore the f- blue unitard. Oh, jeez. Like the old school Batman and Robin. That's I don't right. I feel comfortable like this. Why not? Just trying. You're leaning too hard. I don't yeah. know what to do. You guys are trying to change the subject. This year, the theme is 80s Christmas. I have a kick ass costume. It's going to be awesome. Zach, I pictures. love your shirt. And, uh, it's a nice one, isn't it? It's comfortable yeah. as hell. And yeah. Mike this year. Go Bridgman. Go Bridgman. Mike this year uh, says he's not coming to the party, but he's coming to the f- party. Tell him why, Mike. Look but, right in that camera and tell them why you're not coming. To the party that you've always attended. Just don't answer, Mike. Listen, listen. Just look right viewers. in. Look right in the camera. This argument has been going on for an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> an hour and a half, easily. I have to return some videotapes. <laughs> <laughs>